for the week of September 3rd, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 629, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. How was the hurricane? I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. There was no hurricane here. You see, you were that was a joke. You were supposed oh. to like lead into, uh, obviously, you don't know your geography. The hurricane hit Florida, not Alabama. Oh, well, what are you talking about? It didn't I hit Florida, Alabama. You Southerners together, right? Oh, you were well, all there, in the there, South. There you go. There you go. Well, um, why aren't you at a film festival? Why aren't you at Venice or something? Oh, uh, you know, that's a long story, but. Uh, well, that's I, annoying. I want me. to be. The trades not, are not, out. Not, the trades are outdoing themselves with fest coverage and breathless reporting on the lengths of standing ovations. It's really. Can I tell you something? I told I, I mentioned this when we covered Cannes this year. Yeah. And like all the trade, the true trade journalists, we talked about this then. They're like, oh God, we hate those stories. It's we hate so those stories. Stupid. But because don't, they they don't get tell me. such don't click tell me bait, they get clicks. They do. Please. That's ridiculous. they hate it. Each that's, one of them is like, ah, oh, this is the worst. But, and that's why you look at, the, look at the bylines on those stories. None of them will write them. David Fincher is at Venice with his new film, which got some very good reviews. It's called The Killer. Bizarrely, the trades describe him as puzzled by the standing ovation. He's like, what? What is this? He's like, what? Like, he didn't understand what was going on. Why are they applauding? What's happening? He's like, he's been to Cannes in Toronto. I'm sure they gave his movies a standing ovation at Cannes in Toronto. I don't know what the heck was with, up with that story, but uh, there you go. That puzzled me. Uh, I'm not puzzled by this, though. Late, late running obit. Steve Harwell, the lead singer of Smash Mouth, just died at 56. Uh, that's sad news. That's the, hey, now you're a rock star, right? That's Smash Mouth, right? Yeah, all star. Hey, now you're an all star. That's right. And speaking of music, I get a newsletter from David Byrne every week or every month. Great however. newsletter. Great yes, newsletter. It was a lot of fun. And the new one, he offers up a playlist and he talks about covers and how he says the breakout song for the Talking Heads was a cover of Al Green's "Take Me to the River." As an aside. When mentioning this song and how it got airplay, he says, "Quote: In those days, radio was the way most people heard your music." End quote. I'm like, oh my God, you do have to explain this to people. Like, you couldn't just walk around and play any song ever written on two seconds notice. Like, you had to actually hear it on the radio unless you bought a physical copy of the album. I'm like, yeah, no, you have to explain that, don't you? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I was, uh, when I was working over the weekend, I was listening to Jean Baptiste's new album. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, you know, he went on this big tour for uh what's the name of his new album it's like uh uh world wide radio i can't remember the name of the album i i listened to it and i couldn't remember i just looked up jean baptiste and clicked on the latest album that should tell you something right there that <laughs> but i thought you know really uh it's world music radio is the yep. name of it yep and i thought you know he's really you know all of these artists they're not trying to get you to buy the album in the first week. They're trying to get you to just listen to it on your streaming service. Just, just go and listen. Just go and listen. You well, know, they're just course, trying to get it. Yeah. yeah. It's like a totally different way of promoting. Well, it's just easier for you to access the album. I mean, yeah. 
they tour, they, they want songs on the radio, they want you to listen to their music. It just used to be much more cumbersome. You had to go buy a physical copy, but you can just play it anytime you want. So yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. But sad that you have to describe that and explain to people, radio, this thing, where it was your only chance to hear a song and you couldn't just tell them to play the song. You had to wait until it aired. What? But anyway, we can also explain to people how our podcast works by telling them, what are we going to talk about this week? This week on Showbiz Sandbox, it's the Lone Ranger. <laughs> wow, we've gone back into the, the 30s. <laughs> to, the ra- to radio. All right, <laughs> very nice, very nice. Well, we're celebrating this week uh, the rise of movie star, and she's a newbie. I think she's going to have a huge career. Taylor Swift, ladies and gentlemen, Taylor Swift. Uh, she conquered the album charts and football stadiums, and now she's going to conquer movie theaters, although not in the movie Cats, I will say. Uh, And with summer box office, by the way, it hit $4 billion. Taylor Swift's arrival in movie theaters comes at the perfect time. We're going to explain all this, so just stick with us. We'll also look closely at the trailer for Michael Mann's new film, Ferrari. No, he's not driving one. He's making a film about one. Does anyone care this very Italian story has so few Italians actually starring in the movie. Uh, and by the way, what drove their choice of which other Michael Mann films to mention? Mann, you know, from the director gla- of exactly. Yeah, well, he should be kind of happy that he's not making films in Iran. I mean, that can be more dangerous than a Formula One race. Plus, we've got the latest on the strikes. In this case, no news is really. It's bad news. Actually, no news is. Not good news. And we're recording on Labor Day, so we have a Labor Day message from the WGA. Yes. On Inside Baseball, now this is really the story of the week, but since it's Labor Day, it didn't really get a lot of play. We'll look at the showdown between Charter Cable and Disney and what it means for the future of cable TV. Let me tell you something, it ain't pretty. You, You don't think this got a lot of play? Every single person in Alabama is talking about it. They flipped out because they can't watch their, their college football. Literally, people losing their minds. Oh, God. You know what? Now that you mention it, you know, here, LA is so big. They're like, USC's on? When? Oh, oh, did they win? Oh, they did. Okay. And that's, it's just like, you know, because it's on a local channel. But uh, actually, we could talk all about college sports and how the Pac 12 just imploded this weekend. Um, But of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office. And he will explain, by the way, what the Pac-12 is and what that has to do. The Pac-12 has two. (laughs) Pac-12 down to two. Uh, Yes, these numbers are Big Ten. No, not 10. <laughs> and they're really bad at math. Anyway, we are looking at the worldwide box office for the week ending September 3rd. These totals do not include the Monday totals, which have just been coming out and all that sort of stuff. So as far as I can tell, we're just giving the guesstimates for the full week ending on Sunday. Uh, but it'll all come out in the wash. But the number one movie around the world, Oppenheimer, $76 million this week, $850 million worldwide, a $32 million opening in China. Oppenheimer, a three-hour biopic that's not flashy or you know action-filled, $850 million worldwide. This is an awesome, amazing accomplishment right up there with Barbie. Uh, it's very, very cool to see. Very satisfying win. At number two is Equalizer 3, the third and apparently final film in the trilogy about the you know, uh, Vigilante, starring Denzel Washington and directed by Antoine Fuqua. 
It opened to $61 million worldwide, including a very strong Labor Day opening uh, here in North America. In China, we have a big film. Um, it made even more money over the week uh, than uh, Oppenheimer. This is No More Bets, a crime drama. It made $51 million this week. That's at $520 million worldwide. And of course, Barbie is still on the charts and still doing great. Barbie made another $41 million this week. It's at $1,380,000,000 worldwide. Today is September 4th, Labor Day. Tomorrow on Tuesday, when you're probably starting to listen to the podcast, it probably takes you four or five days. You know, you exercise and listen to some of it. Then you go for a drive and listen to some more. And eventually, you know, Thursday or Friday, you finish it. But Barbie will be for sale, digital sell-through, on Tuesday, September 5th. Still making $40 million around the world. Why rush it out? Uh, back in China, Creation of the Gods Part 1 made another $26 million. It's at $360 million this week. Somehow the budget, the, the grosses for this movie have doubled over what they were one week ago. And there seemed to be another little curious uptick in China box office. Maybe this is a holiday weekend I'm not clear on or sure about, or they found some money. But if you know what's going on in China, tell us. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. Don't, don't cry, it's okay. It's yeah, okay. You know what? I got a little frog in my throat when I, when I heard about uh, Oppenheimer. Hello, my baby. Right. Hello, my honey. Hello. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Wrong decade. Uh, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. Twitter.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is still our handle there. And we're on Facebook. Just search for Showbiz Sandbox and our page should come up and you can like our page at Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. People weren't sure if Oppenheimer would click in China. There's also questions about Japan. I don't know if we have Japan numbers yet. Um, Did it open in Japan already? I know they were talking about it, but uh, hmm, that's a good question. Um, But... Oppenheimer did very well. It got great reviews in China and a great audience response. The same is not true for Gran Turismo, based on a true story. That made another $25 million this week. It's at $80 million worldwide, but very little of that came from China. It made about a million dollars when it opened there this week. Uh, Meg to the Trench, another $22 million. That's at $375 million worldwide. Clearly, it's going to pass the $400 million mark. Blue Beetle is delighted to get past the $100 million mark. It made $20 million this week. And back in China, Papa, made another $20 million. That's at $80 million and counting. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was on a double bill with Blue Beetle at my local drive-in, and I wanted to see it, but I just couldn't get away in time. That made another $16 million. That's at $150 million and counting. And Elemental, still making money. The Pixar film, which opened weekly, uh, made another $10 million this week. It's at $480 million worldwide, getting closer and closer to, of course, half a billion dollars. And respectability, it cost about $200 million to make. And from our back of the envelope uh, estimates, that means the movie should probably gross about triple that amount worldwide for us to say, yes, this is a 
clear box office hit right off the bat. Um, it's not going to get there, but it has certainly redeemed itself and will be a valuable part of the Disney Pixar library for many years to come. There are Think many. Think about it. If you if you've made a hey, I made a movie that made half a billion dollars. Oh, it's a bomb. Oh, sorry, too bad. <laughs> That's a shame. Yes. Well, many other movies are on the charts. You can check up our chart. Unlike uh, Comscore, and we pull the links from Comscore in our show notes and other places. Oh, we just keep going. Long as we can find movies that have gross money, especially movies from around the world. So we've got a lot of films in India, a lot of films in Korea. For example, uh, is that the highest uh, grossing film in India right now? It's Gadar 2 or Gadar 2, another $7 million. Then there's the Tamil film in India, Jailer, that made $6 million. Uh, Rocky. Rocky, yeah, well, that's way down there. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's Chinese, there's Korean, you name it. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki or Miyazaki Hayao, his film, The Boy in the Heron, continues to quietly chug along in Japan. It made three million dollars this week. It's at fifty one million dollars and counting. Not the rapturous huge box office I expected for the final film from Miyazaki, but still, uh, people are clearly going back again and again to see that movie. But you can check them all out. On our show notes, we've got a long list of movies. And if you see a movie that's missing, let us know. But we can't wait for Taylor Swift. Her era's concert film is coming to theaters in October. My niece immediately, Franny, immediately. I, as soon as I saw it, I forwarded it to her. She's like, oh, I'm already online in the line. <laughs> you know, it was like, no, no, no. Taylor had alerted her people. The fans were there. They were already, she'd already been in line for hours. When I, as soon as I saw the story, I sent it to her. Oh, I've been in line for hours, Uncle Michael. Get, but why get does she it. have to be in line? She could just like buy a ticket. <laughs> Are you being funny? She's in an online queue. An online queue to buy tickets to a movie. That hadn't come out yet. Yes, so you can get the best seat on the day that you want. Otherwise, it's going to be sold out, baby. Are you kidding me? $37 million presale on the first day alone for a concert film. That is more than the vast majority of concert films make in their entire history. They're now predicting this movie could open to $100 million. That's more than every single concert film in history has made in their entire run, except for one film, Michael Jackson's This Is It, which made two hundred. Sixty million dollars worldwide. Well, Taylor and beat look him. at what you had to have happen for that. For that, well, the, the plan is yes, but you don't need to have it happen here. Taylor Swift could beat him. I'm not sure how wide it's going in the rest of the world. Uh, well, I'll, I can tell you, I got a lot mm-hmm. of information on this. this yeah, movie. talk to me. Well, and and kind of it's it's the story of what happened this weekend with Equalizer Three. As you know, there's a strike going on right now, which means there's no talk shows. There's no way for Denzel Washington to beat the pavement and say, hey, go and see my movie, go and see my movie during one of the, it's not known as a really good time to release a movie. There's, you know, but there's no bad time to release a movie. No bad time to release a movie. January 12th, uh, March 7th, there's no bad time. Labor Day is a perfect, you got a right movie, right audience. And this movie clicked and made about what the other Equalizer movies made on their opening week. Right, and, and, and partly because Denzel Washington is a name, mm-hmm. Equalizer is a franchise that people like, yeah. and therefore, that's all you needed. It, right, just like Dune 2, we argue, yes. Right. Now, how does that relate to Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift has 365 million people that follow her on social media, and as wow. you mentioned, yeah, she can, she can email her, her fans, she's got the fan club, and they will all go out. So she was talking to all of these distributors, you like, you know, Warner Brothers and mm-hmm. Disney. And she's like, why bother? And, and they were like, okay, yeah, this is a great 2025 movie. 
And and she was like, uh uh-uh, uh, no, no, we it's want to come out now. And, and and we should charge a premium for it. She said, no, 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 no. $19.89. Why $19.89? Because that's her big album and her, her birth year. So, yeah. um, and so, and it's coming out right on the heels of her, or right, on, right along with her. Why would you 19- want to wait a year and a half? Why would anybody suggest that? Getting so, out as soon as possible is the only logical thing to do. So they, they wanted it to be, so the family did this. And Adam Aaron over at AMC is getting, getting or taking all the credit that he, uh, he went and met with the family and said, look, we can do this for you and we could do a sub-distribution deal with Variance. What is a sub-distribution deal? Guess what? They are working with Variance Films and Variance Films is going to basically book the film, do all the heavy lifting, all the grunt work of making copies and sending them out there and taking the phone calls when the copies don't work and making sure that the FedEx gets to, you know, basically making, doing all of the, the, the work that Deluxe and Technicolor used to do, and Deluxe and Technicolor may still be doing for, for a film like this. Meanwhile, AMC is keeping 100% of concessions and 100% of any merch sales, like uh, the buckets, the, the popcorn buckets and mm-hmm. all that, they keep. They're also keeping 43% of the, uh, of the box office. So if you make $20, they're keeping 43% of that $20. They're then keeping a portion of the distribution. So the, the other uh, 67%. Is it 67? You know what I'm talking about. 57%. Uh, the other part of the 57%, they're keeping a percentage of that as the distributor. So essentially, Taylor Swift, who spent at most $20 million making this movie over two to three days uh, in Why would Los it be Angeles, $20 million? I'm Because they're... They've said between 10 and 20 million. So I just always go to the high end. When, yeah, when yeah. they say 10 to 20, I'm like, uh huh, 20 million. Oh, <laughs> so I don't know when, why it would cost that much to film a single concert, you know, a weekend of concerts. That seems extremely high to me. But anyway. Well, they also did, you know, pickups and stuff like that. But it's all the post production and all the. And they're going direct to exhibitors. What I think is interesting about this is that it's basically exhibitors saying, hey, distributors. Remember when you, we had this pandemic and you decided to put every movie direct to streaming on your own service? We can play that game. We can do that. We're going to do it with one of the biggest stars. Do you think there are studios that are going to be like, uh oh, we got to be nice to the exhibitors now? No, no, they're pissed off right now because Universal was releasing uh exorcist on that day well, they people are like, moving movies they're getting out of taylor's way of course yeah they moved exorcist up a week because they were like fine i don't know why they'd be pissed because they have very few movies to show so there's plenty of room for everybody so i agree with that it's going to be a big film it's going to make a ton of money uh in comparison stop making sense one of my favorite films of all time uh is going to be playing at the toronto international film festival on september 22nd but there will be a live stream of it on imax screens on that date and a, and a question and answer with the group they're together for the first time in many years and just answering questions but that's cool to see hopefully they can be friendly and that movie made about five million dollars <laughs> so just a, just a little comparison there i mean even if you adjust for inflation you're up to what 20 million dollars i mean even if you adjust, oh no it's not even that much yeah no it's, yeah. no it's not that's not it's not that much of an adjustment it's only in the 90s for god's sake um but yeah you know so taylor swift is rescuing the box office just when we've hit the summer box office of four billion dollars so that's great to see um you know 
It's great. You should, the momentum is here. We hit a $4 billion, and now there are movies being pulled left and right. So Taylor Swift could not have come at a better time. Is Netflix going to rescue the box office? No, right? They just pulled out their no. schedule, and what did we discover? Well, before we get off of Taylor Swift, you know, I've, I, I can't tell you the number of people that, and no, I'm not being paid for this, that said, oh, this is because the, of, the, of the Paramount decree, right? It went away, so now exhibitors can do this, right? I'm like, no, no, that is not. Uh, well, well, but they could have gone through Disney, right? Now Disney can own the movie theaters. I'm like, they always could if they were Disney. That has nothing to, and by the way, everybody's like, oh, all concert films will do this from now on. I'm like, no, Beyonce could do this, but nobody else can do right. this. Nobody else would bother. It wouldn't be worth their, yeah. And, and Netflix, frankly, if you look at it, Let's talk about Netflix for a second. Uh, Taylor Swift worked with Netflix on Americana. She worked with Apple, I believe, or Disney on some other movie. Project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Folklore, I think, was the name of that project. And Beyonce worked with Netflix on her concert film, her last concert movie. So that should tell you what is important here and what works. It's going to theaters first, you know, basically milking all of your distribution channels. And Netflix just does not care. They, they say, yeah, okay, we can make money in movie theaters. We'll do it with one of the films that we have. Well, not to Michael clarify, Mansfield. Netflix released a schedule of a bunch of major, major films and shorts and documentaries it has coming up in the fall. And when you look at all the titles, uh, many of which are in, you know, look very promising, all the high-profile titles get at most two weeks or really 10 days in theaters before they hit streaming on Netflix, which means they're not trying to milk the box office. These are sort of just vanity releases so that the filmmakers can say, my movie played in theaters. Uh, they're not interested in chasing box office. They don't want to do They want people to subscribe to Netflix. That's their game. They don't want to get distracted by saying, we could make you know, a ton of money by putting it in theaters. They're like, we don't care. We want people to subscribe to Netflix. When you look at their whole schedule, there's one exception. That is Bradley Cooper's biopic Maestro, which gets a full month in theaters starting November 22nd, the day before Thanksgiving. And then it hits Netflix on December 20th, of course, right before Christmas when people are at home and hanging out. Uh, and, and what uh, I would say, now that Dune is out of the way, mm-hmm. move that up by two weeks, you're done. You could be move done what by up? Christmas. Move what up by two weeks? Maestro. Move Maestro up by two weeks. What do you mean two weeks? You mean earlier than November 22nd or? Correct. Okay. Then you'll have a full six-week run. Yeah. Then you're, you're good. Yeah, well, that's too late, isn't it? Probably. Yes, or n- yes it is. Is it? I mean, no, it's not- no, it's not. It's not too late. It's just that they're not going to do it. Nothing I say will make them change their minds, mainly because they're not listening to me. But that's another story. <laughs> that would that would be. Yeah, you're just saying, look, you, so you're not talking because immediately my thought is, why are you yanking it right before Christmas? One of the busiest box office weeks and 10 days of the year between Christmas and New Year, you just rake in money. So it just seems so foolish to say, oh, we want people to watch it at Netflix at home at Christmas time. They don't care. They're not demanding that they watch Maestro come Christmas time. So just leave it in through the new year or leave it in while it's still making money. By the way, put it I on think streaming. even if you open it on Netflix, mm-hmm. Christmas Day or before Christmas, you know, that, that Well, week, you can still leave it in theaters, yeah, yes. Yeah, leave it in theaters. What the heck, well, why yeah, not? You, you could, but they won't bother. You know, get people to pay for it twice, because that, that's exactly what will happen with that movie. But, you know, you know uh, Bradley Cooper's getting a lot of flack for the fact that, he, you know, he's No, he's not. This, it's not a lot this, of flack. It's stupid. It's not a lot of flack. There's well, a there's, brief day story, and now we've all moved on, from the fact that he was made to look like... Leonard Bernstein, who has a yeah, big who nose. Cares? <laughs> who right, cares? it's not a lot of flack. It's just a stupid story and it's over. 
And I've gotten three questions of people saying, do you care that, you know, this is a movie about a Jewish man there, there's no Jewish stars in it. I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. I, like, am I supposed to care about this? Yeah, I, I've not heard that, but that brings us to Michael Mann's film Ferrari. I was a little intrigued by the trailer. It's a film about Ferrari, the creator of the great sports car. And it's, it's a story that's been told before, Italian language versions, documentaries, films, TV stuff. So it has been told before, but this is a big epic from Hollywood. And it's a film about a hugely famous uh, Italian innovator. And there's almost no Italian people in it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, do people care anymore? I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, representation is important. Yes, but this goes back to Denzel Washington can open a movie. You know who can open a movie? Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz. Really? Are you crazy? Are you kidding? You don't think Adam Driver can open a movie? Adam Driver has never opened a movie in his entire life. Name the movie that Adam Driver has opened. Well, he opened 65, but not well. (laughs) He was in. It opened, but it didn't open well. So yeah, Yeah, no. To your point. Uh, Star Wars, but of course it wasn't him. No, he did not open Star Wars. Yeah, no. Uh, I, I do not think he is a movie star who opens movies. Penelope Cruz, more so. Though she's, you know, she's not had the opportunities as much to open movies on her own. Uh, Frida, obviously, um, but uh, a, a great movie star, and she's a name that should draw people in. But uh, no, I, I don't believe that they do open uh, open this movie. It's it's a movie that has to be sold based on the reviews and the track record of Michael Mann, and and also the car. People are Ferrari fans. They'll go on F1. Exactly. Formula One is a hugely popular sport. So this is a big movie about a big sport that people all over the world are, you know, fascinated by. And of course, Michael Mann is a, is a big director. And when you want to sell a movie, you say things like from the director of, and in this case, I was intrigued. It said Ferrari from the director of heat and last of the Mohicans. And I went, huh? Not from the creator of Miami Vice. You're right. That's, that's his most commercially successful project at all, of course. The TV series Miami Vice revolutionized television production to a degree and how TV shows were shot and how cinematic they could be. And that was very cool. You might have done that. But they identifies him as the director of Heat and Last of the Mohicans. I said, well, that's interesting. I went to look at his track record. He's got 12 movies. And guess what? Very few of them were hits. Three of the first three were flops. The last three have been flops. And in the middle, he's got uh, like, this is his 12th film, I should say. So he's got five films and only really three hits in his whole career. He has Heat, which tripled its budget, Last of the Mohicans, and Collateral with Tom Cruise. That happens to be his biggest hit film, and it stars Tom Cruise, but they don't mention it. So why would that be? Why Heat? Uh, well, because it's, first of all, they're making a second film. Well, they have not greenlit that, have they? Did he I put out a so. novel? I what? believe they, they've greenlit it. Well, yeah. that's well, not anyway. why you would put it on the trailer for a movie, to promote the fact, because there's a new one coming out three years from now. I don't know. If I'm not mistaken, because I worked on Last of the Mohicans, that tells you how old I am. Yeah, all the way back to the... Uh, I screwed up on Native the fact-checking of Last of the Mohicans, but anyway. Yeah, well, so I worked on that, uh, and that was a 20th Century Fox film. Heat, I believe, was a Universal film or a Warner Brothers film. I can't remember... Uh, so it can't be a studio thing, right? Because Netflix it doesn't care. So oh, maybe this is, a, this is a Netflix film. I isn't it? No. Who's releasing Ferrari? I don't know. I just I I, I don't know. I'm not in an exhibition oh, it's like an, you. No, it's STX and Neon. So yeah, it's an independent. It's not Netflix. Okay, well then I'm wrong. Uh, 
I guess, yeah, it's a neon film. Uh, right, so I, that if they had other movies with him that they wanted to promote or something, they might have mentioned them. But you typically want to mention the big movies from a director. And while Collateral is higher grossing, I don't think it really stuck in anybody's mind, whereas Heat is like a guy's, it's it's sort of a latter-day godfather. It doesn't have that level of, of popularity, but it's really like, oh, guys love that movie, right? Heat. They just love that movie. It's very popular online on, on streaming and video. I think it's really just a film that really guys identify with. And Last of the Mohicans is probably the only Michael Mann film that you could argue actually has appeal to women. And now any woman should like any Michael Mann film because he's a good director and women like all types of movies. But if you're trying to reach a female demographic and you want them to know, hey, this movie has a romance in it and a relationship, and that's at the heart of the film, Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz, it's good to remind them of the romance at the heart of The Last of the Mohicans. And so I think that's why they landed on those movies. But looking well, at Well, I mean, I'll tell you, I'm, I, I liked Heat. I, I definitely liked Heat. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was oh, my favorite movie of all time, but I will tell you, ever since seeing that movie, I have never let myself get attached to anything that I was not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if I feel the heat around the corner. <laughs> See, it's a quote from the movie. It's a quote from the I'm, I'm Very flipping. good. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. In what state was The Last of the Mohicans mostly shot? I would say definitely. Yeah, definitely that one. It's one of the Carolinas. Take a guess. It would have to be North Carolina. Yeah, you're right. I was a fact checker at, at, at Premier Magazine when they did a cover story on The Last of the Mohicans, and I am horrible, horrible at geography, and I somehow got it in the thing. It said South Carolina instead of North Carolina. So, of course, the North Carolina Film Bureau, and apparently every citizen of North Carolina decided to write <laughs> into Premier Magazine and say, uh, wrong state, dude. And not only, of course, was that bad, you know, fact checker, that's bad, wrong state. Uh, who knows how it got in there to be South Carolina. It's not like I typed South Carolina. Somebody else wrote, but... Oh, I had to not only, you know, eat crow and learn my lesson, but also write back to every single person thanking them for pointing out how stupid I am and got the wrong state and how sorry and, and you that were was, for that. And that was at a time when you had to do it on slate. You had the hammer and chisel out there. That's and you, right. had to you had to, you had to give it to yeah, the dinosaur to carry over to, to the, all the folks in North Carolina. That's right. So it, it was a difficult, I was lucky I wasn't fired. I certainly wasn't a member of a union. I was just a freelance fact checker. Well, I was on staff at that point, probably, but I was a fact checker for Premier Magazine. Never belonged to a union, but there are freelance writer unions now. I, I should there have joined are. them at one point. Yeah. But we are talking about the strikes and they're ongoing. And, you know, Starfield is out there and 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 World of Warcraft and the strikes wait, could what? be spreading. No, no, no. We're, wait, wait, Stri Michael, time out, time out. Mm -hmm. We are yeah. talking about the writers of movies and television shows and the actors of yeah. movies and television. What are you bringing up all this video game stuff because for? Because it's writers and actors who are involved in making video games as well. What? And the SAG-AFTRA has just called for a strike authorization vote, which will conclude on September 25th, so a couple weeks from now. Uh, if they can't make a deal with the industry, uh, the actors promise, I say, to pick it on all 1,000 planets in the new game Starfield. 
there's like a thousand planets you can explore in Starfield. They're going to pick it every single one of them. But they're hoping to make a deal. But if they can't, there will be a strike spreading to the video game industry, which is a huge industry. And you can imagine the delays in video games that will be impacted in 2025 and beyond. So that yeah, would have a ripple effect. Take years to put together. So this exactly. isn't like, oh my God, we're not going to have something for Christmas. No, it's like, yeah, you're not going to have something for Christmas in 2026. And what job, if you need a job and you're not, you know, you're out of work at the video game industry, what job could you get at Disney? Yeah. And if, by the way, you hear me talking fast today, it's mm -hmm. because I'm trying to get through this so that I can actually send my resume into Disney for this particular job, <laughs> which is a, a, a PR person to work on crisis communications. Yes. They should have put that up weeks ago. You can make $300,000 a year helping Disney not screw up when trying to put out their message of why they are refusing to make a deal. <laughs> oh, here's the thing. If you are a PR person working on crisis communications for Disney during this time period, this summer leading into this fall, $300,000 is not enough for the number of years it's shaving off the end of your life, which like, we will get to toward uh, the end of this particular episode. You're calling into Bob Iger's office. And he's like, why are people so angry at me? I don't get it. Uh, what, what was, <laughs> wait, didn't you work just November and December last year and make $25 million? <laughs> well, some people are getting back to work like AMC Studios. This is not the theater chain, but the cable channel, AMC Home of Mad Men and so on. AMC Studios struck an interim deal for three TV shows with SAG-AFTRA. Apparently the writing on them is done so they can begin filming again. Two of them are spin-offs from The Walking Dead and the third one is the new season of Interview with the Vampire. They can begin filming. AMC Studios is not an official member of AMPTP. It's associated with it, which means any new deal that is struck, they will honor and abide by, but apparently this allows them to be somewhat independent, and thus they're allowed in these particular cases, not all things from AMC, but these three shows, for some reason, were deemed eligible for an interim agreement. Uh, does this show weakness on SAG-AFTRA to be giving more and more stuff interim agreements, or does this show you're, you're peeling off people from the studios and creating division and saying, look... People are ready to get back to work and they're happy to follow this agreement. You know, look well, that's at Adam exactly Driver. That's exactly what they're doing. That is at, you're you're yeah. absolutely right. Uh, I know you were about to talk about Adam Driver. What what did he say at... Uh, well, he, uh, why don't you tell what, what he said and then I'll explain why. He was why like, oh, why can't everybody... You know, if we can make a deal for our movie, why can't everybody make a deal? Yeah, because he's with Neon, it. as we now know. Mm -hmm. uh, and Neon not being a part of the AMPTP, they got a waiver to do the promotions and the publicity for Ferrari. By right? agreeing and to abide by any contract that is struck. And uh, the interim agreement is like, we will abide by the best case scenario deal you're asking for right now. We know that the final deal will be less than this, because that's how deals work. You're not going to get everything they ask for. Right. But we believe... That will be perfectly fine, and we whatever deal is struck, we'll be able to live with and make money. Well, and and Adam Driver's point was, look, if we can do it and all these other producers can sign our sweetheart interim agreement, why can't other people agree to that? Which, which is like, no, they're agreeing to that for now. Okay, Adam? <laughs> they're, now, they're agreeing to, to abide by any deal that is ultimately struck. Which, which means they just agreed to their worst case scenario, and they know that the 800-pound gorillas won't agree to that, so they're never going to have to live by those rules. So, right, but they're also saying we're ready to move forward, and we believe absolutely. whatever, even if this was exactly what was struck, we could make money on it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so when you see AMC Studios striking a deal, you feel like that's a good move by SAG-AFTRA. It shows people want to get back to work and they're willing to live with the deals that is likely to be struck? Correct. And I think that uh, they, yes, I think that they're basically doing what you and I have said all along, and we've said it on, on this particular program, that wh- how this will end will be some coming apart of the AMPTP. We're not coming apart. They're still going to be together, but there, there will be some kind of uh, tension inside the AMPTP with certain studios and distributors needing to actually get a move on and others going, no, we don't want to. Like Netflix can drag their heels. Apple can drag their heels. Amazon can drag their heels. But Universal, Paramount, Sony, Warner Brothers, they need to get Disney. They want to get back to work. Well, you know, Barry Diller, you know, you know, mm-hmm. the mogul Bar- Barry Diller, uh, he said over the weekend or, or last week, he said, why don't the studios and the networks just cut Netflix, all the streamers out, just say, look, we're going to cut our deal. You go cut your deal. I, I don't think they're the people holding us up. I don't think the studios are dying to make a deal either, though. That implies that like they would love to make a deal and they're ready to deal. It's just Netflix is holding their arms back. Yeah, maybe not. I don't maybe. think that's yeah. true. But I do think that... Um, the WGA has a good message out there. They're better at messaging than Disney, that's for sure. And they're saying on this Labor Day weekend, they put out a message and they're saying the studios are wrestling with each other and fighting about that. And they say, quote, we are not on strike out of greed, nor do we begrudge the companies their success or deny their struggles. We must all succeed together. This is the WGA Negotiating Committee co-chair Chris Kaiser in a video to the WGA members. He says, but the changes that the companies have orchestrated in the business have made the profession of writing untenable for us and for everyone who comes after us. And that hasn't changed because they waited 102 days to talk to us and taken their time since then. Our feet and backs may ache, but our cause is the same. Our case is the same. So, you know, you can't help, but they've got everybody on their side except the studios. They've certainly won the messaging. I mean, you look at all the polls and it's like most people, I'm surprised they even know what the WGA is, but apparently they say they support them. But yeah. talk about a case. You wouldn't want to have a, a legal case in Iran. No, Not a good lose. place to make movies. You've already lost. You've said, you've, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're, you know, it's dangerous uh, to make movies there. That's for sure. I mean... I, mm-hmm. I don't mean in the Quentin Tarantino pushing the envelope sort of way, by the way. I mean, really dangerous, <laughs> especially in Iran. Just a few weeks ago, you know, we talked about this. We heard the director and producer behind the film Layla's Brothers, which was in Cannes last year. He was punished and banned from, well, I guess it was the producer and the filmmaker. Uh, so both yeah. of them were punished and banned from making movies for at least five years. And why? Because at the Cannes press conference, they referred or referenced a building collapse that occurred in that country. And that had become a flashpoint for public protest in the country against that, against the Iranian government, which some might say is Now corrupt. tell me this. And when you were at Khan this year, did you see the film terrestrial versus that played in Khan in 2023? I did not. And now I'm actually okay. going to look well, it up. Because that like, was another movie this? that played. That played Khan, and now another filmmaker who took his movie to Khan is trapped in Iran and can't make movies for the foreseeable future. At least this time, it's because of the actual movie he made, not a, a passing reference in a press conference. So Terrestrial Versus played Khan this year, and it sounds like a movie you go, wow, I'm a little surprised I got out of Iran. It's a satire about government restrictions that people struggle with on a daily basis. Now, co-director Ali Asghari, who co-directed with a Canadian woman, um, realizes the universal claim his movie got really doesn't matter 
Terrestrial Versus has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 0% from the only critics that matter, the Iranian authorities. So uh, we want to keep the people in Iran who are suffering for making movies in our thoughts and keep them visible and present because that's what can help keep them safer. People talking about it and shining a light on it is the best thing you can do to help those people. I mean, you know, it, uh, us talking about on this podcast is not a big deal, but any little bit you can do to help and keep attention on topics like that really makes a difference. Well, if, if that's not a big deal, if our talking about it isn't a, a big deal, then I wonder what you think of some of our stories in our weekly segment, Big Deal or Big Whoop. Of course, Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story obviously a big deal. How did we get this far into this week's episode without one joke about people being trapped at Burning Man in, in mud? How did we... How did oh, we- <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my, my nephew was there. He went for the build the week before. So he was there for the build to help build out the festival. Um, so they were not... Then there were protesters, climate protesters, climate crisis protesters who were saying, yeah, Burning Man may be the most responsible festival, but it's still not a responsible thing. Look at all these big mobile RVs. Look at the people who jet in, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, they got in trouble for protesting and doing this stuff and blocking traffic on tribal land, which the tribal authorities were like, no, you can't do this. You need to move. So that was my nephew is a huge climate uh, activist uh, and animal rights activist. So the irony of him trying to go to Burning Man and maybe being blocked by climate activists uh, struck me as funny. But it turns out he was already in there safely. But now they can't get out because there's so much rain. Climate crisis, people. <laughs> so much, you know, more rain in like a day that you would see in that area in like three months or something. I forget Correct. what the figure was. But a ton of rain very quickly has left them trapped there. And people, some people just walk five miles to the nearest town. You couldn't even walk through the mud. But my nephew actually did not bring enough medication he needed. He actually had to leave his boyfriend behind and walk out of Bernie Man so he could get home and get some medication that he needed. So he's not actually trapped there anymore, though his boyfriend is still there, but they had plenty of food and water. They did plan well that way. So yeah, what a mess there. Yeah, well... Uh, maybe uh, we know somebody who would. Be I bet it'll be covered that. in the Hollywood Reporter. That's right, and the Hollywood Reporter is on a roll, led by editor Nakasi Mumbai Moody. The trade publication has been showered with awards over the past couple of years. The National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Awards picked the Hollywood Reporter as the best entertainment publication in December. More locally, the SoCal Journalism Awards named it the best website in June. So naturally, they've hired Mayor Roshan to be co-editor. And not just co-editor, co-editor-in-chief alongside Moody. Uh, Roshan most recently was editor of Los Angeles Magazine, but he has a storied track record in journalism, notably as deputy editor of New York Magazine for seven years, editorial director of Talk for Tina Brown, and the founder of, and CEO, by the way, of Radar. So is this a big deal or a big whoop? And my initial thought was, oh, this is like a, a big whoop story, but then you kind of pointed something out. Well, it's bizarre, I think. I mean, why is this happening? Is there so much stuff going on at the Hollywood Reporter that they need two people to do it? It looked like Moody from outside is doing a great job. 
So nobody's going to be happy you're doing a good job. She spent like more than 20 years at the Associated Press, worked her way up to being in charge of global arts and lifestyle coverage, covering stuff like Khan and 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 the Oscars and things like that, and the Super Bowl. And she had a staff of more than 50 people she was in charge of. So perfectly well qualified to take over the Hollywood Reporter, seemed to be doing a great job. And I was like, oh, great, I get to work by, with this guy? Like, there was no explanation of like, well, there's so many moving parts now or any, exp- nothing to indicate why suddenly after three years, I think, suddenly she's got a co-editor-in-chief. That's awkward. That's not good. I actually have crossed paths over the years with Mara Rashawn. I was at New York Magazine maybe when he was there. I'm not sure. Uh, I certainly know his name. I fact-checked some articles at, at uh, Talk. Uh, when he was there with uh, Tina Brown, but I am certain he would not know my name or remember me at all. I was never important in his thing, but I've certainly been around him, I, you know, and happy to see him, you know, moving on from LA Magazine to Hollywood Reporter. But uh, if I was moody, I would be very annoyed. Well, of course, Hollywood Reporter is now owned by uh, PMC, Penske Media Corporation, and they've had not a rough mm-hmm. go, but, you know, like every media outlet these days, advertising is down. And with, well, you know, they're not the meeting their, and- yeah, they're not meeting their, their forecasts. And so I know that there's been a lot of shuffling around over at some of these outlets. Uh, and maybe it's, hey, you focus on one thing, uh, you know, uh, Rashawn, you focus on something else. Yeah, but again, that would seem to that would seem to be logical. Like, okay, you want somebody who's going to be doing the video and audio and podcast side. Maybe that would be a co-editor in chief because right. they're doing all that new media stuff. But both Mayor and uh, and Nikesi Mumbi Moody uh, are real ink-stained wretches. You know, they are print people. They are journalists. And that seems to be their strong suit. Not that they don't necessarily have the expertise to deal with all that new media stuff. So there's just no clear allocation of of uh, who's focusing on what or why they have two people suddenly after three years of her in charge on her own. So I don't think it was handled very well. Well, I wonder what you think of this next story and whether it was handled well, because in an unprecedented move, the artist and label owner, Sean Combs, is giving any publishing rights the company owns back to the bad boy artists. That includes the estate of the notorious B.I.G., Faith Evans, the locks and even Mossy. And is it Mossy or Maze? Because I've always well, kind you've of been, got me there. Well, well, we say even Maze because yeah. that that artist appeared on on many Sean Combs tracks, but they've I guess they've quarreled for years with Maze insisting Combs owes him money, while Combs responded, "Actually, you owe me money, and I got Sperling the prize the last money. time." And you get yeah, Combs <laughs> says, "Bad boy." Look, we're uh, talking millions of dollars, though millions uh, okay. of dollars. <laughs> you get the bill this time. Uh, I got drinks. Uh, Combs says a bad boy has been approached multiple times by people offering millions of dollars for its publishing rights. So is any of this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal for the acts. It's not going to cause a, it's a big whoop in the sense that it's not going to cause a trend. And all of lots of other publishing companies are going to say, hey, you can have your rights back. <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, uh, a pretty amazing, it's not a gesture. It's a significant uh handback of rights. Now, one could argue that artists were signing away too many of their publishing rights in the first place. And to get a deal, you had to agree to give labels a certain chunk. That's the way business was done. People have been screwed over for generations with publishing rights. Nowadays, people know better. And I think new young artists are like, no, 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 I'm not giving up my publishing rights. So that doesn't happen as much anymore. 
but that doesn't mean everybody's rushing to make good, and Sean Combs is doing it here, so that's pretty cool. But speaking of music, Showbiz Sandbox has been on the air for 14 years. Yeah, it started when I was an embryo. <laughs> has not happened in 14 years. It's about to happen. The Rolling Stones are releasing a new album, Hackney Diamonds. It's been an 18-year gap since the Stones put out a new album. We've had the entire history of Showbiz Sandbox without a new album of the Stones. So Mick, Keith, come on the show. We'll talk about it. So wait, I'm confused. Does this mean we have to put out an album? What we we do, we do. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe we can get Kevin Costner out here. He's available. Uh, in fact, Kevin Costner was asked about Yellowstone during a divorce hearing because that's where you're asked about your TV shows. Under, <laughs> under oath, well, there's Costner, money involved. There's yeah, money know, involved. <laughs> <laughs> under oath, uh, Costner said he agreed to film seasons five, six, and seven for $12 million a season, which, by the way, would be a lot. Uh, then season five was split into two parts, so Costner delayed shooting on his own four-film epic Western that he was self-funding, uh, probably with the $12 million per, per season. Uh, he says the delay cost him about $10 million, but part two of season five was never shot because Taylor Sheridan didn't have the scripts ready. Costner pointed to the creator being spread too thin. Previously, Sheridan said the lawyers got in the way of negotiations when talking about Costner's abrupt departure from the series, while others insisted Costner simply lost interest and wanted to make his movie. Costner says he continued to discuss working on future seasons, but Paramount, they just walked away and announced the show would be ending. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's got to be a big whoop, right? But uh, thank God I got a divorce so we could find this out. That, because <laughs> really, terrible, of course. you're finding everything out here. This is exactly, basically... <laughs> He's probably right. Well, he was. He's under oath. He's under oath, you know. So. Right. But yeah, he's under oath telling, you know, you can still say, look, this is what his I did. Side of the, it's his yeah, side yeah. of the story, right. But, you but his side of the story oath. is probably pretty, pretty, pretty accurate. He's probably like, look, you know, I was ready to go. Taylor Sheridan, he, do, he does all the, his own writing. So that people have said for a while, look, that, this is a problem. You know, you, you want to make all these spinoffs and everything. You're going to need some help here. Forget this mini writing room stuff. Michael Weiner, Michael Weiner or Michael Weiner of, a, of Mad Men fame was on the picket line and he was making fun of Yellowstone. And he said, I don't know about these Yellowstone people who claim they don't need a writing room. I benefited from it all my career and I could never have done this or that or the other thing without a writing room of a lot of people. Uh, and it's a great thing. And so he was taking a little dig at Taylor Sheridan there. Um, but yeah. And, and meanwhile, you have Paramount thing. going, you know what? Uh, hey, hey, uh, didn't we screw this up by giving away the rights to, to Peacock? You know what we right. should do? We're ending it right now. Ha! New, new series. Yeah it, yeah. it feels like they saw an opportunity with this snafu and somebody somehow started blaming Kevin Costner for it when they were perfectly happy to, you know, they don't really want to mess with the golden egg. You know, I think they'd be foolish if they, uh, uh, but when loggerheads happened and when things got confusing, they were like, all right, this is an opportunity. You know, so I don't think it's a Machiavellian plot. I just think once things started to fall apart, they were like, so what? We're fine. Let's move on. Because, <laughs> you know, that's, that's how it's working for them. So yes, they get to yank back the rights to streaming uh, for the future seasons, but they may not be as popular without Kevin Costner. But the weird thing is when this was written about, I think it was People Magazine, they said Costner was sort of lighthearted and casual and comfortable when talking about the divorce and all this stuff. But then he got serious when they brought up Yellowstone. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Oh, good grief. Okay. Uh, Here, let me see that- what you think about this one. Okay. Let me see what you think about this one, because I, uh, I think you have a slightly different take than me. Actor Zachary Noah Pizer is a rising star on Broadway. The Chinese-American talent was the first person of Asian descent to star in the lead role in Dear Evan Hansen, the Tony Winnie musical. Currently, he's on tour in China with other talent performing Broadway hits, like a review. And that's when the trouble started. On August 24th, while Pizer was in Shanghai, Playbill announced he was starring in the world premiere of Tiananmen, a brave and necessary new musical. The show tells a love story against the backdrop of the uprising in Tiananmen Square in 1989, capped by the Chinese government slaughtering hundreds, if not thousands, of protesters in the June 4th massacre, which you literally can get no information about if you're inside China. They don't mention it. It's never online. You don't see it. Pizer was quoted in Playbill saying, I am proud to bring this powerful story to life on stage, end quote. Pizer has been involved in the workshopping of the musical for eight years now, since 2015. But the very next day, while still in China, CNN reports that Pizer announced publicly he would not be starring in the show that premieres in Phoenix this October. Why the sudden change of heart? Uh, Creative differences, says his agent. A student protester involved in the show and now living in exile in Taiwan says it's not creative differences, but understandably fear. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? I think uh, it's both. It's a big whoop in in the grand scheme of this particular show. But the problem here is that you have uh, he has family back home and in China. And if he does, his mom is from China. So presumably, yeah. And and he goes back and forth. So presumably, even though he could do, do this entire story in English, they said, hey, would it be a shame if something happened to you on one of your many trips here to uh, China? And I don't know why I'm doing it in some weird accent. But uh, yeah, it's Italian. just... I don't, I, don't know, I don't know that he goes back and forth to China all the time. Do you know that? Uh, I thought that I that mean, he's he in China on a tour. Oh, huh? okay. I, yeah, I, have no, I know nothing about him, so I, I don't know that. But we do know his mother was from China, so it's likely they still have family there. So even if you were never to return to China, yeah, this is, this is an ugly... Bad timing is my first thought. Bad timing. You <laughs> should not have announced this while you were touring in China. So that was a mistake. Not that he was involved in that necessarily, but that's a shame. If he had been out of China... Maybe there would have been no pressure put on him, and this wouldn't have had to happen. But it's a maybe once he gets out of China, he'll change his mind again. But this is a very sad situation, but tells you what it's like for artists in China. Well, and if you get a chance, it's uh, kind of an interesting documentary. The Exiles is uh, a documentary Christine Choi uh, did, where, uh, and I think there was some you know kerfuffle over it uh, i'd have to go back and look but uh it, it basically goes back and looks at some of the exiles who left and they live in taiwan now which i would say is not very safe for you you might want to think about moving uh uh but so they live there now they took part in the Tiananmen square thing and she went back and revisited them 40 years later because they haven't been able to go back to china and their families have not been allowed out of china so they basically left their families and never saw them again some of them live yeah. in the U.S., but uh, in, in any case, uh, the Nielsen Ratings Company, we love talking about these guys. Uh, they're being called for a foul by longtime critic, the Video Advertising Bureau, or as I like to call them, VAB, and CBS Sports. What's the problem? 
It's future ratings measurement for Amazon's Thursday Night Football. That's the problem. Starting this season, Nielsen will incorporate some audience measurement data coming from Amazon when calculating the total ratings for the NFL games airing on the streamer. Specifically, Amazon will be offering some first-party data to help Nielsen track viewing that's taking place via laptops or cell phones and the like. You know, basically the way people watch stuff these days. They're going to say, hey, you watch (laughs) stuff. Hey, why don't we actually count that? Uh, Critics say, really? You're going to let Amazon goose the numbers? They point to suspicious growth in co-viewing, which is how many people are watching together a single stream of a game. And out-of-home viewing, which people do sometimes when they're like, I don't know, at a restaurant. Nielsen says, hey, we've invited everyone to work together on first-party data. The networks, ESPN, you name it, Amazon is just the first one to take us up on the offer and do so. And the numbers didn't grow all that much. So is this a big deal or big what, people? They actually said that, I'm pretty sure. I think... Oh, yeah, I think it's a big deal, uh, both that they're doing it and why and how and the protests. Now, VAB says some co-viewing numbers jumped 28%. And Nielsen says, yeah, in a subset of households only. Overall, it says the NFL games on Amazon in one month had 3% more people watching than NFL games on other platforms. Now, there's no reason why Thursday Night Football should be more popular than any other night. I'm assuming that means the extra viewership eyeballs they found only amounted to uh, 3%. Uh, though it's not clear to me um, how they're parsing these numbers. I think, one, everybody should be working hard to make sure they can get more data about all everybody watching shows. But being handed data to you by Amazon or ESPN or NBC is not the way to go about it. It has to be some authoritative third-party group that is neutral. You know, Nielsen needs to be in charge, not Amazon, not ESPN, not anybody else. So I do have trouble with, I don't know, all the back and forth and how they're doing this, but it does make me uncomfortable knowing, oh, Amazon's saying, oh, here you go. <laughs> you know, that's, there's got to be a better way. Got to be a better way. Well, that sounds all very like, you know, keeping track of ad, you know, for ad dollars and all this and viewership. And it seems really like an inside story, like almost like an inside baseball story. And in fact, it is time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what what they mean, actually, for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And let me tell you something. This does affect at least people in North America, in in the United States. Inside baseball? No, it's like more like no inside baseball. No baseball at all for you, especially if you're on ESPN. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you that much because I turned on my little Roku this week to get into my Spectrum app and I was going to watch. What what is this? There's a whole thing here that says something about Disney and fairness and what is going going on here? Keep going. Well, okay, change is happening everywhere, as we know, but especially in TV today. We're going to look at the battle over the future of pay TV bundles like traditional cable. Charter, which owns Spectrum, says everything is different now. Everything. And cable and cable packages needs to change with it. It's battling with Disney. It's doing a whole argument over what sort of change needs to take place. Disney says, can we just sign another long-term deal? and charge your remaining five subscribers even more for ESPN. I mean, that's what we want to do here. Charge them $9 a month. And, you know, (laughs) especially if they don't... That's what we're paying now. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we're paying. 
And trust me, I can tell you that when I, when I had Spectrum and when they took over, I was paying $150 a month. I now pay $205 per month. It's absurd. Wow. The only that thing that's changed. Uh, nope. The only thing that's changed is all these carriage fees. You want to know why people are cutting the cord? Look at that. You know, I wish I was a good Shakespeare. I can pay $80. I can pay $80 yeah. for YouTube TV. But when, it's rising all the time, by the way. Well, when they actually said what some of the channels were that I was paying for, like ESPN Deportes and FXM, and then there was another Spanish channel. Now I'm not saying, hey, you know what? Some of the people who watch the Spanish channels might not watch ESPN. So why should they have to pay for that? But you shouldn't care because the whole package should be inexpensive enough that you're happy. You shouldn't say, oh, I don't like this channel, I like that channel. It should just be an overall deal that's good enough that you go, I'm happy. And yeah. the problem was they kept charging more and more. So then you're angrily pointing at this channel and that channel. Well, I don't want to pay for that. And a la carte just doesn't work. It's not the way things were done in the old days. But this is just like the strike. Everything has changed for writers and actors and everything has changed in cable television and the contracts they have need to change with it. Charter is saying, we got a lot of ideas. We got a lot of things we want to do. I can't believe I'm sympathetic to a cable company, but that's how I feel here, that there does need to be a radical change because they're losing customers left and right. I'm here in Alabama. Believe me, these people forget God. Their religion is college football. People freaked out. Because the college football game of Alabama was not available on ESPN for a lot of people if they subscribed to Charter and Spectrum, which is a big supplier here and in California. I was at a barbecue place that I go to regularly. They immediately went out and bought two fire sticks and canceled their Charter subscription. Another yeah. place I went to, the baker at the cafe I went to, he was like, if this continues through the end of the month, I'm canceling and getting something else. And I talked to him about YouTube TV and Disney, in fact, <laughs> Charter's threat was, you know, we might just leave the cable business altogether. Enough of this nonsense. Disney's response was, hey, you know, people, you there's a lot of different ways you can get your television, like uh, Hulu TV. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, wow. basically, they've gone direct, okay? Disney has gone yeah. direct and said, oh, you could get Hulu plus live TV, to which um, Charter said, uh, hey, guys, 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 do you know we pay for like 19 of your channels every month? Do you know that? Like $190 million a month? Yeah, Charter hands Disney a couple billion dollars this year. That's what they estimate. Just Disney alone, not everybody else. Here's their proposal. They say, look, we need a hybrid model that combines streaming and linear to offer a package that's actually appealing to people. They say we need lower penetration minimums, meaning customers have to have more flexibility in what they want. If you don't want a big sports package, and I personally wouldn't, but my brother does, well, then you shouldn't have to pay for a big sports package. If you don't want ESPN, you shouldn't have to pay for ESPN. It should be easier to opt out of some big parts of your cable package, at least the big channels that you don't want, and not pay for the channels you don't want. Like you were saying, I don't want this channel, I don't want that channel. But that upends everything and every way that the cable subscription model has worked for decades now. They say, Charter says, look, we want to include Disney's ad-supported apps in our Spectrum linear packages, meaning there would be like a Disney channel with ads at no extra cost. And Charter's right, like, like, well, right now, pay more for cable. Right now, Disney wants to say, mm -hmm. okay, you can get Disney Plus and it's going to cost you $12 a month, or you could get the Disney with ads and it'll cost you $6 a month. And Spectrum is saying, or charter in this case is saying no if they're a charter subscriber they get that disney with ads for nothing well no but they're not 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 for nothing they're paying for it as part of their 
Correct. monthly bundle. They Correct. are paying for it. They're saying the Disney $6 is only going to people who don't subscribe to cable. So they're like, look, every, you're kicking everybody out of cable, making it so expensive. They're all leaving. So you have to make the cable package still appealing. And one way is to say, well, that one channel that you have with ads, let's put that in their cable package and not, it's not make it a premium channel like HBO or something so that it's more appealing and they'll stick with it. And you'll keep getting that $9 a month for ESPN and $1 a month for this and $2 a month for that. Otherwise, you're not going to have anything. I, I agree with you. I cannot believe for even a split second I'm agreeing with the cable company here. But I do mm-hmm. agree with them on this. I am paying for things such as, okay, di- the Disney Channel, which, okay, fine, the Disney Channel, I get it, it's their major. But I'm also paying for Disney Junior. I'm paying for Disney XD. I don't even know what Disney XD is or ha- which channel it's on. I'm paying for ESPN2. Okay. I'm paying for ESPN Deportes. I'd even say, okay. You know, maybe we all need to pay for it so it can be in two lines. Okay, fine. I'm paying for ESPNU. I don't need the, the, the Atlantic Coast College Network. No. Oh, I'm, my, I'm paying, you want the ACC. Oh, yeah, you do. If you're a sports fan, you want that bundle. Freeform? Baby TV? I'm paying for FXX, FXM, and FX. The only one of those that I know is FX. I'm paying, now this is how crazy this is. This is, this kind of underscores what I pay for in my monthly cable bundle. I live in California, okay? I'm paying for the Longhorn Network, which I only have to assume has something to do with the University of Texas. Why am I paying for that in California? Of course I don't want that. Why would I subsidize that? Why am I being forced to subsidize that? Because you want to be able to walk into a library and not know the book you want. Just like somebody says, oh, I saw this great show on the Food Network. And maybe 20, 10 years ago, you never watched the Food Network or HGTV or some other channel or AMC when somebody started watching Mad Men and told you to watch Mad Men. And the appeal is supposed to be you have a lot of channels and you don't look at a lot of them most of the time. But when something new crops up, you can just go check it out. You don't have to subscribe yeah. to a whole service. Say, oh, if I want to watch something on Peacock, you know, the bundle is supposed to be appealing. There's more channels than you need, but you're also going to stumble across stuff that you never knew you wanted. And that's why it's good to have a rich, broad array of stuff. If you told me I was paying like three cents a month for that, I'd say, great, okay, fine, whatever. But instead, I'm paying a dollar. Right. So that's $12 a year for something I would never... Well, you are not paying a dollar. You're not paying a dollar for Disney XD. You're not paying a dollar for the Baby Channel. You're not paying a dollar for Freeform. You're paying $9 for ESPN and all the other stuff trails behind it. So yeah, it's a big mess. Do they want cable television tv bundles to survive that are not direct to consumer over the top if they want these companies to still make money so that their channels can still make money they're going to have to come to some sort of agreement you want to make have a big broader way of programming but you don't want to make it so expensive that everybody cancels it and right now people say i never want to see espn you know right that would save you nine dollars a month but it'd still be like 180 dollars minus nine it's still yeah. be 171 and the problem if we say, well, that makes sense. They want to make it appealing. You're competing with YouTube TV and Hulu TV Plus. Why shouldn't some of these streaming options with ads be available on a cable bundle? Because that's what you're competing with. Why not? The problem is, of course, ESPN. Disney makes so much money off ESPN. Fox News Corp. 
You know how much money they make off Fox News? Half the country would love to cancel Fox News, and the other half, I guess, would love to cancel MSNBC, but that would completely upend the ecosystem that they have depended on for so long. And meanwhile, they're trying to get a new system going with direct-to-consumer, but they're afraid to cut the cord on the way they've been making money all these years. But their idea of like, well, we'll just keep charging more and more for ESPN and Fox News as the audiences get smaller and smaller, it's not working anymore. Charter says like 25% of their people left Charter, right? I was one of them, but I didn't stop paying for a bundle. I just went to a cheaper bundle, YouTube TV Plus, which by the way, has a great sports package, including the Big Ten Network, the ACC and all that stuff, part of my $80 a month bundle that my brother wanted. So it's like half the price of what you're paying and it's a good deal. And, and can I just- um, for uh, some yeah, of the extras. Yeah, and let me just, um, just take, uh, this is a brief moment to, to explain all these you know, acronyms that you hear, Big Ten, ACC, they are college sports- leagues in this country in the united states so for those of you overseas that's what they are and there are five of them uh and they tend to go geographically so there's the atlanta coast network the southeast central network or network league sorry there's uh the the pac 12 which was supposedly all the pacific teams but guess what michael all of those teams including usc including ucla and now as of this weekend including stanford yeah. And, and Washington, they all left. They depend on the money from all this. <laughs> right. They depend on millions of dollars coming in from these TV deals. So they all went to the Big Ten, which is now like the Big 20. Here's my problem with that. They're supposed to be student athletes, okay? Which means they're supposed no, to be that, in school. No, that's a whole different issue. Yeah. And that's, I'm not going to go down. They're professional athletes who... They're professional athletes who generate a billion, billions of dollars in money. So they're right. not student athletes, no. But if you don't care about but any, so, so going back to our stream here, if you don't care about college sports, you're being forced to pay for it. And the only reason that this can happen is because of this subsidizing. That's the only reason. That's the only reason the Dodgers went from being $400 million in 2003 to $2.8 billion how, how you, in, in 2013. But remember how you kept telling people when they wanted to cut the cord, you're like, yeah, you think you hate your cable bill. But once you cancel it and then you start to add up the channels individually, suddenly it's costing getting right back up to where you were before, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I knew that. Yeah. Because you got Netflix yeah. and the Disney like the Plus. Cable the-, bundle, the cable bundle was a good deal, but it's gotten too expensive. There are other alternatives out there. If you want to make it more appealing and keep the gravy train growing for another 10 years while it fades away or gets smaller and smaller... Disney and Charter are going to have to come to agreement and whatever agreement they come to is going to radically affect the agreement everybody else makes. And it may mean less money for ESPN and Fox News in the short term. Well, and you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, could we just cherry pick and say, well, I want BBC, I don't want CNN. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. CNN had a chance to actually notice this decline in linear television subscriptions and start migrating towards a streaming uh, solution. It was called CNN Plus. Zaslov came in with Discovery and killed it within the first month. Now, of course, they have they brought in Chris Licht and fired <laughs> him. Now back. they have a new yeah. Now they have a Mark Thompson coming on board. He is the uh, formerly with BBC. He was the head of the New York Times, and he brought them from a declining paper first news organization to a kind of you know vibrant. A digital bright digital future where yeah. yeah 
and they have millions of subscribers now. And he was there for like, I don't know, seven years. He's been hired by Zaslav to come in and do the same thing, I guess, over at CNN, to which I'm like, hey, maybe you can start with this thing, you know, maybe create your own channel. Like, and like everybody else, just put plus on it, like CNN, CNN, uh, CNN plus, <laughs> call it CNN plus. Oh, you've already done that. Never mind. But come on. So what do you think is going to happen with Charter and, and Charter and Disney? Do you think I there's think going to be a radical go, realignment right now? This is it. This is, I think, uh, Bob Iger is waking up every day going, why? Why did I come back? Why did I say yes? <laughs> <laughs> I was, everybody thought I was great. Now it's just a mess. <laughs> right. I think this is going to go, because think about it, it can go another week or two, right, before people really start to mm-hmm. get antsy. Uh, you know, I'm sure, I am sure that Disney thought, oh yeah, US Open is on ESPN. You're, you're going to lose all those people. They're all going to like go out and cancel. Guess what? Those people that were willing to cancel were probably only with you for another three years anyway. Okay. The people that aren't going to cancel, mm-hmm. well, they're not going to cancel because they weren't watching ESPN. So they don't even know it's missing. <laughs> you know, that's just. So do you a- think there's going to be a radical change? Are they going to come to a deal that radically changes how. If there was ever, what I have told the writers and, and, and actors who have asked me about the strike, I've always said, now is, actually 2020 was the time, but we had a pandemic. Now is the time to strike and get the deal that you're going to be living with for the next 30 years. What I would tell Charter right now is now is the time to go through this pain. Because if you go through this pain now, you're going to get a deal that you can live with for at least the next 10 years. If you don't and you cave, you're done. And cable TV will be dead. Ooh, I like That's the right. way you did that. Uh, and, and, but, if, you know, I think that uh, Bob Iger, actually, he was uh, hanging out with Jimmy Buffett in Margaritaville. He was like, you know what? I just got to dry out. Got to dry out. And maybe I'll just go get a job was. again. He probably did know Jimmy Buffett. I <laughs> know. Jimmy Buffett was rich. He hung out with Warren Buffett. He and Warren Buffett joked that they were related. They called each other Cousin Jimmy and Uncle Warren. So Can I tell you, I got them confused. Billionaire, all- says Forbes. Yeah, I got them confused all the time before I, like, like when I was much, much Warren younger. Warren Buffett and Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> I was like, wait, which one's the, <laughs> did you which ever, one's the Margarita Did you ever Bell? hear of Jimmy Buffett? Yes, of course. Did you ever hear or care about Jimmy Buffett? I've heard of him. Not I didn't care, necessarily- you just knew of him. Yeah, it's like, you know, okay, cheeseburger yeah. in paradise. All right. Well, he was a singer and a businessman, Jimmy Buffett. He died at 76. Or should I say he was a businessman and a singer? I yeah. mean, he really, really was a smart businessman. He was a, a good songwriter, an amiable singer, maybe at best. I don't know why he put out 14 live albums, because he was not that good a singer. But a great businessman, more power to him. And he taught me about regional acts. When I went to college, my roommate, I had a bunch of cassettes at the time. That's how old I am. Had all these cassettes. And he's like, who's that? I'm like, who's Jimmy Buffett? And this is in Florida. I'm at the University of Florida. I grew up in South Florida with the Keys. Everybody knew Jimmy. He's like, I never heard of him. I go, you've never heard of him? That's like saying you never heard of Billy Joel or Springsteen. You might not like them, but you'd sure as hell heard of them. He had absolutely never heard of Jimmy Buffett. And that's when I learned that there are acts back in the day that could be really big in one region of the country and like get nothing anywhere else. Like Bob Seger was for a while in the Midwest until he broke out or Jimmy Buffett for many years until he broke out even bigger. People just didn't know about you. You could be a big hit 
in the Pacific Northwest and not known anywhere else. And Jimmy Buffett was that act for a while till he finally crossed over. But I don't know if that happens anymore. I mean, you know, if you're a success in drawing up fans, you're doing it on YouTube and TikTok, and it doesn't matter where you are in the country. Touring isn't as important anymore to build that audience. Radio is supplanted a bit by YouTube. So I'm not sure if there's that same geographic success that you can have. I mean, there are sure local acts that are big that nobody else has heard of, but I don't know if you can become a big regional act anymore without just being big everywhere. But Well, I mean, so. think I about it. In but, the 90s, you had the the grunge scene in Seattle, right? You had Stone... Uh, uh, right, but no, Spindle. no, no, but they were known nationally. No, Eventually, no, no, yes. Things grow, but they be, they were huge. Not eventually, very quickly. <laughs> well, in, no, in, no, in they, they, comparison, they were... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these are like people that go 10, 20 years and nobody else ever hears of them. Or, you know, it's, uh, they don't always break out, but they're big regionally and they just don't break over nationally. I just don't know if that happens anymore. But Jamie Buffett, if you don't know him, casual singer-songwriter, uh, he was sort of the the Tommy Bahama of music, you know? Yeah. He was the beach equivalent to the Grateful Dead. You wouldn't quit your job to follow Jimmy Buffett on tour, but you would wear a Hawaiian shirt, see him in concert, maybe buy a small boat, make a pilgrimage to the Keys, eat, and then ultimately eat at his restaurant, stay at his hotels, and retire to one of his retirement communities. Good Lord. If you have any interest at all, you can't go wrong with Songs You Know By Heart, his greatest hits album. That's a great name for a greatest hits album, by the way, Songs You Know By Heart. By far his most successful album. And very recently, he had the best album of probably 20, 30 years. It's an acoustic album of covers of lesser-known tunes by him that he called Songs You Don't Know By Heart. So uh, those are two good places. It's not a lot of gr- not a lot of stuff, most of it from the 70s and early 80s. But uh, I have a soft spot for Jimmy Buffett. Well, how would you like to be in this category, by the way, before we get off of Jimmy Buffett? Only six mm-hmm. people have ever had a number one fiction and a n- number one nonfiction book on the bestseller list per the New York Times. Of the New York Times. Only That's six. right. I'm Here's amazing. Here's the list. You ready? Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Irving Wallace, William Styron, and Dr. Zeus. I mean, it's almost like a, it's a, it's like a joke that Jimmy writes Jimmy Buffett. Well, yes, Jimmy Buffett. And Jimmy Buffett. And yeah. Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty cool. He had a bestselling memoir, A Pirate Looks at 50, and a couple nonfiction books, I mean, a couple of collections of short stories and fiction that went to number one. So more power to him. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. One of those people I always wanted to interview, but I never got around to it. Now, did you know f- documentary filmmaker Nancy Bursky? Not personally, but of course I knew uh, of her uh, of her work. Uh, she did the, probably the most well-known documentary is The, the Loving, right? The, the Loving Case. The Loving Story, uh, yeah. The yeah, Loving Story, uh, yeah. It's about, uh, it, it kind of legalized uh, interracial marriage. Well, not a documentary. The, the, the Virginia versus Loving is the landmark Supreme Court case that ruled no states could not say that interracial marriage is unconstitutional. You know, it's, uh, state laws banning interracial marriage were considered unconstitutional after that case. So that was a landmark court case. She did a, a documentary about it. She very famously founded the full-fame documentary film festival in 1998, saw it grow into one of the major documentary film festivals in the country. But it wasn't, ironically, until a decade of overseeing the festival that she actually directed her first documentary, and that was The Loving Story, uh, which won an Emmy, a Peabody, and so on, and became the basis for the Oscar-nominated film Loving. And her most recent doc, which I have not seen yet, was about the making of the film Midnight Cowboy. Oh, 
Yeah, I'd like you to see that. Yeah, it's supposed to be very good. I haven't watched that. And here's a, a Hollywood Reporter had a great obituary about this person. Uh, one of your favorite directors just died, but you've probably never heard of him. Jamie Christopher died at 52, and fellow directors like Ryan Johnson, James Gunn, and others sang his praises. Now, Christopher never actually directed a film. He began as a production runner then rose to third assistant director, second assistant director, and ultimately first assistant director on a string of major films. Think of the first assistant director as like the director's right-hand person. Now, he was born into the business. His mom had a couple credits on movies like the sci-fi horror flick Event Horizon, and his dad, Malcolm J. Christopher, had a good storied career. He was a production manager for decades on films like Ragtime, the Sean Connery Bond flick, Never Say Never Again, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, and one of my favorite films of all time, John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. Check that out if you haven't. But Jamie made his folks proud, clearly excelling at every stage of his career. He worked on all eight Harry Potter films, and you can see his credits getting better and better as he works his way up the ladder. He did Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers Age of Ultron, Knives Out, and many more, climaxing with Marvel, giving him an executive producer credit in addition to his role as first assistant director on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which was a big hit. And he got the ultimate geeky bonus in The Last Jedi, Star Wars The Last Jedi, he entered the Star Wars universe by playing X-Wing pilot Tubbs. I mean, if you're going to be in, you know, making all these movies, you might as well put yourself in the film. And finally, well, you my- know, mm-hmm. you know, just to give you some sense, the to have this much love as an assistant director, first assistant director, the first assistant director, kind of often known as the bad cop. You know, he's mm-hmm. he, he's the person. Hey, guys, come on, we're back from lunch. Okay, we're rolling in five. You know, like he's the 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 person that keeps the production on pace. He's the hammer. And so, and, and so that should tell you something. He obviously did a good job. Very cool. That's a good point to make. Finally, my friend's mom died. No. Yeah, normally that wouldn't happen. We wouldn't talk about it. But Denise Reagan is a friend I made in college working at the student newspaper for the University of Florida, where we all listen to Jimmy Buffett. That was the independent Florida alligator. Her mom, Rita Reagan, was 83. Sad, but I didn't imagine I would be talking about it on the podcast. But reading her lengthy and very interesting obituary in the Florida Times Union revealed this fascinating fact about a life that began on a tobacco farm with no indoor plumbing, extended to multiple college degrees, and a lifetime as a teacher and educator. But Rita, Rita Reagan also became passionately involved in the preservation of Jacksonville, Florida in numerous ways, including Jacksonville's Norman Studios. Now, I'd forgotten this, but during the silent era, Jacksonville, Florida was known as the winter film capital of the world. This was back when most movies were shot in New York City. But some 30 studios were built in Jacksonville, Florida and operated from 1908 on so filming could continue during the bitter winter months. Now, that history was all but forgotten locally. And Norman Studios was a set of dilapidated and abandoned buildings when people like Rita led the successful movement to preserve the history. The site was protected, it was added to the National Register of Historic Places, and it just opened as the Norman Studios Silent Film Museum in August, just days before she died. And this is even more interesting. Norman Studios actually specialized in films with all-black casts. So it's even more historically important and its story even more special. So next time you're in Jacksonville, like me, make sure you go to the Norman Studios film, Silent Film Museum. And remember Rita Reagan. That is unbelievable, that story. 
Yeah. That's how did you find it? Wow. Well, it's my friend, Denise. Her mom died. <laughs> then I read the open and I went, oh, wow. That's perfect for the show. Yeah, That's very unbelievable. cool. Unbelievable. Yeah, I I'd forgotten no. that about Jacksonville. That they would come to Florida. Like there were thirty different sound, sta- you know, different sound stages scattered around Jacksonville. They keep filming movies. All you know, why stop just because it's winter? That's amazing. Well, thank you for for letting us know about that, and thank you for listening. If you're if you're listening, well, at this point, if you're not listening, you probably aren't hearing this. Oh, but and Robert Klein you know died. The, the the screenwriter of Weekend at Bernie's. He died at eighty one. That just happened. So you our know, sympathies I, go out to him and his family. But I want to keep him around for a party. Just one party. <laughs> I think he'd like that joke. He also directed Thank God It's Friday, co-wrote Unfaithfully Yours, an unnecessary but amusing Dudley Moore remake of the classic Preston Sturges, wrote The Man with One Red Shoe with Tom Hanks, and uh, oh. you know, had an interesting little career. Well, you know what? Find out who passed away on next week's show. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast. In, uh, I, I don't know whether it's Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Will somebody please write in and let us know? Uh, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace. I believe Stitcher's going away, but Spotify. Anywhere you listen and receive podcasts, you can usually find us and rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That is where you will find ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888. 8567SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Our handle on Twitter is at Showbiz Sandbox, and our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT, just like us. They have their own website. It is <laughs> whoismgmt.com. Uh, Michael Gills has his own website, and he's he can be found online every week. He's got something new and exciting for us. What is this week, Michael? This week, it's normanstudios.org. Uh, Rita Reagan, rest in peace. And you know what? Just in case, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.